0: Hello and welcome to A Flat History of Sweden. We're your trusty podcast guide through the maze of events that make up Swedish history. I'm Chris and this is episode 97 and it's going to be a long one.
1: Yes, and I'm Åsa. Indeed, this is episode 97. We'll pick up where we left off last time with King Christian sailing away with his hostages from Sweden back to Denmark... And thus not just closing the door on any negotiations between the two countries, but firmly slamming it in the face of Swedish regent Sten Sture the Younger. But first, as always, it's time for the Swedish phrase of the week. This week's phrase is bära hundhuvudet.
0: Which is an interesting one, which means to carry the dog's head. And it means quite simply to be blamed for something.
1: Exactly, to be blamed for something or to take the fall for something or even to be the scapegoat for something. So you could say, even though the whole board had been involved in the financial mismanagement of the company, it was the chairperson that had to bear bära hundhuvudet, had to carry the dog's head, meaning that it was he or she that took the blame for it. According to an article published by the Institute for the Languages of Finland, Hundhuvud, or dog's head, is an insult that dates back to the Bible. It's said, for example, in the book of Samuel in the Bible, chapter 3, verse 8, Am I thus a dog's head from Judea? Funny phrase. One of the lesser quoted Bible verses, I feel. But anyway, to associate a dog's head with something bad goes back a long time. And so to carry it implies that you've been stuck with something you'd rather wish you hadn't.
0: And yes, that was from the Institute of the Languages of Finland. But as we know by now, this is, of course, a language that is still spoken in Finland and is one of the official languages there. So don't worry. (laughs) It's come from a legitimate source.
1: Now, we saw in the last episode how Denmark, with King Christian II at the helm, and Sweden, where Sten Sture, the Younger has secured his power after some internal fighting with the Archbishop Gustav Trolle, they are once again at war with each other. Christian lost the Battle of Brännkyrka in 1518, and though the two sides were due to sit down and negotiate a peace treaty, Christian instead just took the hostages he'd been given and hightailed it off home to Copenhagen
0: which was definitely very bad form. Christian had been given these hostages as an assurance, which was a very common thing to do in the 1500s to ensure that nobody did something stupid like this, because the Danes would have given hostages to the Swedes, but instead the Danes just ran away with the Swedish hostages. This isn't what you're supposed to do, you're not actually supposed to take them hostage, they're sort of supposed to be temporary hostages. And in this group of people that he's now sailing off with are the Swedish senior statesman and all-round Forrest Gump guy of this period Hemingad, uh, a few others and a young nobleman by the name of Gustav Vasa.
1: It's now late in the autumn of 1518, and as was sometimes the case, there's a bit of a lull in the fighting for a little bit, but the very next year, in the winter of 1519, King Christian is back, attacking Sweden with a large force that attacks from the west, Up through the county of Västergötland, which they burn and plunder, they also take and rebuild Älvsborg Castle. This is a castle that's popped up time and again in our story. It's the main castle in the west of Sweden, and so holding Älvsborg is of great strategical importance. Now this is in Danish hands, the Danes have effectively cut off Sweden from the west.
0: And all whilst this is happening, the hostages are still in Copenhagen just sitting there being hostages, by the way.
1: Yeah, they're imprisoned.
0: Yeah, we haven't forgotten about them. But it's not just on the ground with military manoeuvres that Christian is really hammering Stan and the Swedes. In 1519, he also gets the Archbishop of Denmark to get in touch with the Pope and have Stan excommunicated. It means that Stenstor is cut off from all religious activity in the country and he's not allowed to receive the sacraments and so on. And in the deeply Catholic Europe of the 1500s, this is a big deal.
1: Indeed, it's a massive deal. We've already seen how Steensture has had problems with his relation to the church, what with his fighting with the archbishop kicking him out for being a traitor and destroying his castle, Almarestäket. So this excommunication is really adding fuel to a fire that Stan doesn't need. He needs help and support, not more people to turn against him, which is what he gets with this excommunication. As a matter of fact, King Christian and the Archbishop go further than just getting Sture personally excommunicated. They get the Catholic Church to put Sweden under interdict, which basically hamstrings all church activity in the country.
0: The interdict means all weddings, christenings and funerals are cancelled. It also means that bishops, priests and all other representatives of the church are forced to support Christians since he's the one combating Stensturer who, because of the excommunication, has become an enemy of the church. They have to make the excommunication of Stensturer known around the country by ringing church bells and gathering people in church to tell them what an awful man Stensturer is and that it's his fault that all the fun stuff in the local community like weddings and christenings are cancelled. This is a major moral victory for Christian too because these are religious times and people out in local communities all over Sweden will be susceptible to the message that Stenstra is a bad Christian and therefore not someone they should support.
1: Yeah, Christian is really working on winning not just on the battlefield but also winning the hearts and minds of the people to use a modern term.
0: Christian's forces continue to sweep across Sweden, and in the summer of 1519, they take Borholm Castle on Erland, another important strategic position. The force that takes Borholm and Erland isn't very Danish, though. It's made up primarily of German and even Scottish mercenary soldiers, of all people.
1: And this is a fact that's beginning to cause Christian more and more trouble. In order to continue to mount these attacks against Stensture and the Swedish forces, he needs to rely increasingly on mercenary soldiers from, in particular, Germany and Scotland. And they cost a lot of money. They cost so much money that the Danish state coffers are beginning to look very empty. And the emptier the coffers get, the more annoyed the Danish nobility gets with the king, because they don't like to see him spend all the country's money, but still not achieving superiority over Sweden. And so in the end, Christian has to retreat back home to Denmark.
0: As we get to Christmas 1519, we have two enemies, Christian and Stenstura, who share a common problem. They're both running out of money. Stensturo is at Vesteros Castle trying to make ends meet in his accounting books. Just like Christian, he's had to spend a load of money on mercenary soldiers too. But to get local peasant forces, in particular from Darlana on his side, he's also going to have to pay back some of the taxes he's gotten from them, which means he's got even less money. He can't raise more money through taxes to pay for more mercenaries because then he'll have the peasants turn against him.
1: Meanwhile, in Denmark, Christian is trying to raise enough money for one final push against Sweden. I imagine him running around telling everyone, just let's just hit them one more time. I promise this time we'll knock that annoying Stensture off the throne once and for all and we'll make sure they never again put regions in charge of Sweden. Just please give me some more money. So Christian raises new taxes, he increases the Øresund toll, the passage fee that ships have to pay to sail through the straits of Øresund, and he raises the fee for trading at the markets in Skåne. He also forces the Danish churches to make donations – And last but not least, he gets the Habsburg dynasty to finally pay the delayed dowry he's owed for his wife, Elizabeth, who is a member of the Habsburg dynasty and actually the sister of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V.
0: He's really collecting the cash any way he can, and with this cash he raises a new army. He has mercenary soldiers from France, Brandenburg, Pomerania, Scotland and Saxony too. They all gather in Danish Halland and they're well equipped with pikes, swords, handguns and artillery too.
1: We're in January 1520 and it's time for one last showdown. The Danish force enters Sweden along the Ätran River up through Västergötland and then one half splits off to go into Småland and up to Östergötland in the east whilst the other continues up the from the west. So this means that they will soon approach Stockholm from two directions.
0: Swedish intelligence has picked up on where Christian is, and on the 19th of January the Swedish forces, led by Sten Stürer himself, meet the enemy in open battle on Lake Åsundern, near the modern-day town of Uri Saham. They're actually fighting on the lake itself, because it's the 19th of January, so that means it's frozen over.
1: That is why the battle becomes known as Slaget på Åsundens is, the battle on the ice of Lake Åsunden, or sometimes the Battle of Bugesund, named after a nearby town. At this point, the Swedish forces are quite depleted, and the Swedish commanders, well, they're basically not very good and morale among the men is low. This means that Sten himself is trying to raise the morale by riding around in amongst the troops and cheering them on. But as soon as the Danish forces attack, Steensture himself is hit by a projectile or a cannonball. Different sources say different things, but he gets his whole leg blown off just from the knee shot right off him and the horse he's sitting on dies. It's possible that a cannonball ricocheted off the ice and bounced into him, which is not the most common way to get hit, I suppose.
0: Because his whole leg below the knee has been blown off, it's much more likely that it's a cannonball rather than just a little handgun thing because that's not going to take your whole leg off. So yeah, you know, the popular uh, description is that, yeah, he gets hit by a cannonball that's bounced off off the ice uh, because this is right at the start of the battle too. Basically, the Danes just arrive, put up their cannons and shoot a couple of cannonballs at the Swedes before the battle starts and it takes Stenstora out with one of the first shots. And this is a really serious wound, obviously losing your whole leg, and he's carried away in a sledge but with him gone there's no one really left to take over and lead the Swedes in the battle and in the end it's all pretty shambolic. A large part of the Swedish army just retreats right away to a nearby forest and they all just kind of run off and start heading home.
1: Yeah there's really no order or discipline left in the Swedish force it seems. The soldiers yeah they run away and the battle is a crushing defeat Or it sort of ends before it actually turns into a real battle. In the end, what remains of Stenstorre's force decide to retreat towards Stockholm, taking their wounded leader with him.
0: He's obviously in really poor condition, considering he's had his leg blown off. And this is the year 1520, so there's not really any effective medication or treatment for him. He's being pulled on a sledge over the ice and snow-covered roads, And on the 3rd of February, when the retreating force is dragging the sledge along the ice of Lake Melloran, they find Senster has actually finally died from his wound. And so the regent is gone.
1: Oh no, this is not good. Sweden is without a leader and we've got Christian approaching with what is now essentially an unstoppable Danish force.
0: But before we uh, continue the story with the Danes, let's just pause for a minute to say a few words about Stenstura, because he's only been in the story actually relatively briefly, but he's continued a long line of Swedish regents up until this point. And we read a very interesting article in the popular history magazine, Popular Historia, that discussed whether or not Stenstura wanted to remain regent or become a real king of Sweden and permanently sever ties with the Kalmar Union once and for all. Unlike people like Karl Knutson Bunda, he never called himself king or openly opposed the idea of a union in practice. There are some indications that his representative to the Pope tried to get the Pope's support for Stenstörer as king of Sweden by becoming friends with the Pope's brother-in-law and nephew and influence him in that way. But then Danish diplomats interfered. And yeah, we know that Stenstörer had his own problems with the church from uh, kicking out the archbishop and being excommunicated. So yeah, that probably wasn't a likely likely thing to happen.
1: As we know, this conflict that we're in the middle of was never as easy as simply Denmark versus Sweden, even though that is sometimes how it's been portrayed. Instead, it was much more a case of the monarch versus the council, as in the nobility and the clergy, and disagreeing on who should have influence over who and how should the individual kingdoms of the Union be ruled. Then that is interspersed with non-noble groups like the peasants, merchants and burghers wanting to assert their influence and protect their own interests. And to complicate it even further, there are family ties and alliances crisscrossing the union that also influence people's loyalties.
0: That's why we see how it's far from a given that all Swedish noblemen are supporting Stenstura. In fact, many of them wanted to have a ruler based in Copenhagen that left them alone to rule locally as they wanted as local men of power. Anyway, back to Stenstura. He's sometimes portrayed as a friend of the people and supporter of the peasants, but modern historians are becoming increasingly more dismissive of that image as time goes by. Instead, it's much more likely that he sought the peasants' support simply to get one-up on his fellow noblemen in the council and, in true Machiavellian style, use the fact that he had the support of the peasants to threat the other noblemen in the council.
1: Either way, as we saw, the support he enjoyed from the peasants also dwindled as his problems with the church increased. It's worth mentioning that as he is lying there in his sledge on the ice of Lake Mälaren, and slowly dying from his wounds, he's only about 28, 29 years old. He was likely born in 1492 or 1493 and has really had an almost meteoric rise to power. More or less from when he came of age at 15, he's been first the right-hand man of his father, previous regent Svante Nilsson, going on diplomatic missions to negotiate with the Hansa and partaking in battle, and then after becoming regent himself in 1512, he's been engaged pretty much non-stop in just fighting both domestically with the Archbishop Gustav Trolle and that faction and with King Christian in Denmark.
0: He's also had time to get married in 1511 when he was 18 to the then 17 year old christine Jillenferner, who was from a very prominent noble family and the great grandchild of Karl Knutsson bunda so between 1512 and 1520 they've had five children and christina is pregnant with the sixth at the time of Stenstura's death
1: just to emphasize that's five children almost six in the space of eight years. That is literally non-stop pregnancy. I think we should just take a moment to appreciate uh, Christina Jullofjärna. Yes, her husband has been off on the battlefield and engaged in high-level politics, and that's all super interesting, but she has been round-the-clock pregnant from her late teens which is also no small feat.
0: No, absolutely not. And I think we should actually probably take more than just a moment to talk about her and appreciate Christina because she's currently all that stands between Christian and him completely taking control of Sweden. That's because she's sitting in Stockholm Castle, waiting for the Danish troops to advance on the capital. She's around 26 years old by now. Uh, We don't know the exact date of her birth, but she's around that. And like Orsa said, she's a mother of five children and pregnant with kid number six. Much like her husband, Christina came from a very top level of the Swedish nobility. She actually ends up marrying Sten Sturer after her first betrothal has fallen through because the man she was due to marry died before they made it down the altar. That man's sister was married to Svante Nilsson, Sten Sturer's dad. So when Christina's first husband to be dies, the two families quickly strike up a deal that Sten Sturer and Christina will marry each other instead. Their wedding was actually held at Stockholm Castle since Sten Sture was then the son of the current regent. So it's all high-power weddings and stuff going on here.
1: Very much so. And Svante Nilsson died the year after their wedding. And after the brief period with Erik Trolle as regent, Sten Sture outmaneuvered him and landed himself the role of regent. So she's only in her late teens when she becomes sort of the first lady of the country. Speaking of that, it's perhaps worth mentioning that Christina isn't queen as such, even though she's sometimes portrayed as almost being one. But she's not because, well, her husband isn't king. Her official title is riksföreståndare gemål. Gemål is an old Swedish word meaning spouse. So riksföreståndare gemål is literally just regent's spouse.
0: And they uh, used to do that up until quite recently, didn't they? Yeah. And people would be called, if you were like a colonel in the Swedish uh, army, your wife would be called Mrs. Colonel. Correct. And like if you're if you were the wife of a doctor, you'd be called like doctorina, a possessive word to mean of the doctor.
1: Correct. The wife was titled based on her husband's uh, title or profession.
0: What happens if she was a doctor too?
1: Well, then she would just also be a doctor. So
0: she wouldn't be called Doctor, Doctor, in that?
1: No, no. no. Speaking uh, of uh, that, and partly to show how interconnected the Swedish noble families were with one another, and partly just because it'll become important later on in the story. Uh, Remember Gustav Vasa, uh, who was kidnapped by King Christian and is now sitting down in Denmark along with Hemingad and all those people? Well, Christina is his aunt. Her older sister, Cecilia Månsdotter, is Gustav Vasa's
0: Yeah, it's all family in the medieval Swedish nobility, isn't it, at this point? Everyone who's popping up is vaguely related to one another. But yeah, it's this lady who stands in Christian's way on his quest to become king of Sweden. A pregnant 26-year-old lady. Perhaps not your typical idea of a medieval military commander or political leader. Or not even so in the modern day either. So how does she end up in this role?
1: Well, partly because, quite simply... She's the only one left. The region is dead. Christian and his Danish forces have invaded Sweden three times over the last year. So that's cost a fair few military commanders to injury, capture and illness. A few key individuals, like Siege Master and Forest Gump guy Hemingad, well, they're kidnapped and down in Denmark, along with Gustav Vasa. And last but not least, quite a lot of the noblemen in the Swedish council now give up and give in to Christian, seeing the writing on the wall. In March this year, 1520, they all write a letter to Christian where they agree that he should take over the throne.
0: This move by the councillors isn't solely motivated by their military defeat, but also by the fact that they're now starting to reason with the fact that, well, maybe Christian won't be that bad after all. I mean, a few of us weren't that keen on Sten to begin with, now that we come to think of it. He was a bit too understanding towards the peasantry and not favouring us noblemen enough. So who knows, if we surrender to Christian, we might be able to strike a deal, which means we get to keep our power and wealth and he sits at home in Copenhagen not really doing much.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much what their intention behind their letter was. Now, we said Christina is unusual in her role because she's a woman, and that is true, but it's not unheard of. Actually, it's not that long ago, back in 1501 when Stensture the Elder was fighting King Hans, that the king left his wife, who was, funnily enough, also called Christina, in charge of the defence of Stockholm, and she held out for a nine-month-long siege...
0: Yeah, we talked about that in episode 94, and that Christina is, of course, King Christian's mum, so it's all going on, like we said, everybody is related to everyone, obviously he's related to his mum, but it's still, it's in recent memory, and it's people related to the current big players in the game at this point. And this means the king is now on his way to Stockholm to lay siege to the same town that his mother had previously defended in a siege. But the town is now under the command of another woman with the same name as his (laughs) mum. So this is just how it all unfolds at this point.
1: Yeah, I mean, if this was a plot to a film, everyone would think it was just ludicrous. But it actually all happened. So the current role Christina is stepping into is not unique. In fact, in our research, we came across another example of a woman commander that's contemporary with this Christina. That's from down in Kalmar, where the commander of the castle there, Johan Magnusson Natok Dog, died in the spring of 1520, and his wife, Anna Eriksdotter Bjelke, took over as commander and defended the castle from the Danish fleet when it was launching attacks from the sea outside. And Anna was even younger than Christina. She's only about 23.
0: It's all very Joan of Arc, isn't it? Yeah. And Christina, up in Stockholm also has something in common with the other influential women and women in leadership roles we've seen throughout the Middle Ages in Sweden, uh, notably Queen Margareta, Queen Philippa, St. Birgitta they're all from the nobility to begin with. They're not rising from peasantry to take these roles. Christina is from the ruling class of society. And with that comes power in itself, even for women.
1: And because they're nobility, or in some cases even royalty, these women have been raised to be in power. Noble women were the ones in charge of the household, which in this period could include A lot of people and the running of the estate or even estates, if the family had multiple castles or kind of stately homes... In a way, these women ran small or even quite large businesses by today's standards. They oversaw the production and distribution of what was needed at home, whilst their men were off doing political stuff in the council or at the thing or doing military stuff, going off to battle in their military roles. So, in a way, these women were used to management roles, if we were to use a modern term. And in that sense, you can see how going from being in charge of a household at a castle or estate, or even in charge of several of them, to going to being in command during a siege or attack was perhaps not the giant step it might first seem. And you had to strike deals and keep everyone on side to prevent local revolts and all of that as well. So they weren't entirely untrained for these roles.
0: No, and these women had experience of being in charge, taking important decisions and had been raised to fulfil these sorts of roles in their whole life. The one thing they probably hadn't been prepared for was military command. In her book on Christina, Marie-Louise Flemberg writes that Christina had no military experience whatsoever. She had to refer to the experience and advice of others. And there were other people there in Stockholm who knew the basics. They knew how to fire guns and how the cannons worked and which direction you should point them and all those sort of things. And so she would rely on those people. Just like, you know, a president or prime minister is an expert in all of the departments of the country. They let other people do the nitty-gritty stuff. They're setting the direction. And in Stockholm for Christina. Perhaps the person she called on the most was councillor Gren, who was with her in Stockholm the whole time, and he'd previously been the commander of Nysherping Castle, and he hadn't uh, given in to King Christian. He was firmly on the side of uh, Sweden and Christina.
1: In her book, Flembe speculates if Christina felt the urge to take on the role of commander because she was dedicated to the cause. After all, she belonged to the part of the Swedish nobility that had spent decades resisting the rule of a powerful king down in Denmark. She'd been married to a man who made it his life's work to fight that fight. It's not inconceivable that Christina herself was as dedicated to this as any man would be. Or she could have been acting on behalf of her children. She had a son, in fact she had several, but she had one who was very much uh, a contender for taking over as de facto ruler of Sweden once he reached a decent age. After all, their father and grandfather had been regent of Sweden, but these sons they're too young right now so Christina was perhaps afraid that her family's power would diminish if there was a gap in between them being in power so she needed to keep the seat warm so to say until one of her sons could take over. We've seen before how powerful women in the middle ages often acted on behalf of men. We saw that perhaps most clearly with Queen Margareta, who was on paper only regent until her adopted son Eric came of age but even when he'd gotten old enough and was king she was still the one calling the shots. Queen Philippa also ran the country for over a year whilst her husband King Eric went on pilgrimage and travels across Europe so this acting through or acting on behalf of a man is not uncommon when women took on power in this period. Either way, whatever her reasoning was and the factors that made her take command, well, she's there, she's in charge, and she is not going to give up, even though the odds are stacked against her.
0: And they really are, because like we've said earlier, Christian's really on a roll here. He's won the Battle of Åsundens Ice, and he's holding many important castles in Sweden, plus he's got large parts of the Swedish council to come over to his side. The Swedes also essentially have no real military leadership left either. But he knows he can't really legitimately proclaim himself king of Sweden and put an end to the fighting once and for all unless he takes Stockholm and has a coronation. So now it's siege time again.
1: Yes, time for another good old siege. Stockholm will be surrounded, closed off, bombarded and starved out. That's the idea and Christina knows this. Ahead of Christian arriving in Stockholm she gathers the local peasantry and gets them on her side mainly by referring back to what a good friend of the peasants her husband and her father-in-law had been and that propaganda seemed to work. Christina and the remaining Swedes on her side also still hold the important castles at Västerås and Kalmar. And not to forget, they still control all of Finland, which is essentially half of the Swedish kingdom at this point, uh, because the Danish forces have not crossed the Bay of Bothnia. So there are still a few key strategic cards in her deck.
0: During the spring, there's fighting between the remaining Swedish peasant forces and the Danish forces. At this stage, the Danes mainly consist of German mercenary soldiers, and we all know what the main thing with mercenary soldiers is.
1: Yeah, well, they're not loyal. We've seen that time and time again. They don't actually care about the reasons for the fight. They've got no heart in this. They're just doing it because they get paid for it.
0: Yeah, they're literally soldiers and guns for hire. Just like how uh, they rented a a cannon and mortar, like you can literally rent the guns. And since Christian is struggling to pay them, he's beginning to lose his grip on them. The fact of the matter is, even though Christian has got the sweets on the back foot, his force isn't in that great a shape either. The winter is beneficial for moving your forces around quickly over the frozen ground, but it's terrible for when it comes to getting food and shelter to your troops. The Danish forces ransack the Swedish countryside for supplies and food as they go and treat the local population appallingly, even judging by the standards of the day.
1: In early April, there's a bigger battle between the Swedish peasant army and the Danish mercenaries outside Uppsala. This looks like it should have been an easy win for the Danish side, but again, they're made up of German mercenaries that haven't been paid, so they're not really doing their best job.
0: And even though the ground is still frozen, it's now one of those early springs in Sweden where the temperature's around zero and the snow is starting to melt and everything's just getting really damp and muddy. This means the gunpowder gets wet too if it's not stored properly, so the Danes can't use all their guns and cannons properly. It also means that the conditions for cavalry, which the Danes rely on a lot, is far from ideal as they can't charge over their grounds that easily. These were the two major advantages the Danes had, apart from having a clear defined chain of command and decent commanders.
1: The Swedish side also gets reinforcement of about a thousand men from Stockholm, which tips the scale in their favor. Several Danish officers are wounded, the commander is shot by two arrows, and the standard bearer, who was an important symbolic person and someone the forces would rally around, well, he's also wounded and then captured.
0: But then, just as it was starting to look like the Swedes were going to win, the lack of proper military command of their forces begins to show. The Swedish peasants think they've won and so start looting the bodies of the fallen enemies all over the battlefield and start celebrating, but this is very premature. The Danes see the fact that the Swedes have essentially just stopped fighting in the middle of a battle and are now celebrating instead of chasing the remaining Danes away, so the Danes regroup and attack again. And when this happens, discipline just completely breaks down on the disorganised Swedish side and they're all killed or run away.
1: Ah, so close. But there you go. Goes to show how important proper command and order is on the battlefield. Away from the battlefield, King Christian has had time to reinstate Stenstorre's old enemy, Gustav Trolle, as Archbishop, who quickly dives into his role. He's eager to make up for lost time after having been deposed by Stenstorre and imprisoned, but now he's back and he's keen to take revenge. After the battle outside Uppsala, which is right on his doorstep as archbishop, hundreds of dead Swedish soldiers lie on the battlefield for weeks because Gustav won't allow them a proper burial since, in his mind, they're traitors to the country.
0: Yeah, it's now become really messy that there's Swedes on both sides and they're all calling each other traitors. It's like a Latin America civil war from the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Sort of everyone's against everyone. And the king and archbishop must now combine their forces as Gustav gathers troops loyal to him and the other rebelling Swedish councillors and they march on Stockholm together, setting up camp outside the city. King Christian himself arrives to Sweden in late April with a fleet full of supplies ready for the siege. The council back in Denmark is actually now even angrier with him because the war in Sweden is just continuing. They're having to do these mopping up battles and haven't even really started a proper siege yet. And this is costing them money. But he's not going to give in and just stop the war now. He meets with local leaders and members of the nobility in Sweden and bribes them to get them on his side. And he does that by bribing them with salt.
1: Yeah, and you might find that odd... Were the Swedes just really keen on salt and easily swayed by getting more? Uh, Did we have a lot of like salty crisps and we couldn't have that without the salt? I don't know.
0: Well, no, not really. But salt is very important to the Swedish economy, though. It can't be produced in any great numbers locally. And the trade blockade that Christians put in place over the years has effectively stopped it reaching the country in any substantial amount. So bribing with salt works because almost everyone in society needs it. The Swedes need it to preserve fish and other foodstuffs both for trade outside of Sweden but also to keep it in storage over the long winters. This really is war by economic means as much as military and that means that the locals in Sweden and the nobility are crying out for salt and Christian is now happy to give it to them in return for their support.
1: By now, Stockholm has been under siege for months. The townspeople of Stockholm are on Christina's side and the city is well defended. As we know, it's made up of just one island with strong walls around it that have resisted sieges many times before. In fact, at its strongest point, the wall is 11 meters high and 7 meters thick. In Stockholm, they've also put long poles out in the water to prevent ships from mooring around the island. And they've burned the land around the city and taken all their animals into the city itself. Stockholm only has five to 7,000 inhabitants and there are three freshwater wells. Now, at the start of the siege, they're pretty well stocked with supplies, so they are set to stick this one out for the long run.
0: Yeah, this is the advantage of being in Scandinavia and sieging a city because there's actually not that many people living in the city compared with other bigger cities around Europe. Christina has sent some of her advisors before the siege starts out of the city, including her oldest son Niels, and they go down to Danzig to try and gather support for the Swedish fight there. The son, as we said, isn't really old enough to do any real work or leading or fighting or anything like that because he's only 10 years old, so sending him to Danzig was also a way of keeping him safe for a bit. As After all, as son to the old regent, he could one day be a contender to the throne and definitely someone near the top of Christian's hit list.
1: The Swedes inside Stockholm really only have two main weapons to defend the city with. It's two cannons that they use to fire on the besiegers outside the city. Now, having only two cannons might not seem like a lot, but at least they've come up with good names for them. Do you know what they're called?
0: Fat man and little boy. (laughs) no fat boy and little man
1: (laughs) no this was not where the names for the atomic bombs originally came from the two cannons stockholm have to defend itself with was called the devil and the devil's mother
0: those are two decent names i think Um, but by the time we get to the summer of 1520 good names for our cannons are pretty much the only thing that christina's got left by now, the rest of the forces from Sweden around the country have been defeated. and She's not going to be getting any help from elsewhere. The Danish forces have surrounded the city on land, and at sea, the mighty Danish fleet is blocking all entry into the city by sea. So even if they do manage to get some help down from Danzig, it's not really going to help right now.
1: Yeah, it's not looking good. And as the Swedish summer slowly draws to a close, and things are still not looking up for Christina. Guess who shows up?
0: Uh, It's Heming Gad, the guy who pops up everywhere.
1: Yeah, and he now has a new uh, title that can be added to his list of the many roles he had, because we can now start to call him Traitor.
0: Indeed, because whilst he's been imprisoned in Denmark, he's just swapped sides. We don't really know exactly when this has happened, but he's now with King Christian, and he's here in Stockholm to convince Christina to give up the city and surrender. Hemming has gotten Christian to agree to give clemency to Christina and all the other remaining Swedes who have been fighting against the Danes over the last couple of years. Christian agrees to pardon all these rebelling Swedes, or rebelling Swedes as he sees it, and even puts it in writing because he's desperate for an end to this war. Christina and her forces let Hemingad into the castle, and despite being an enemy now, he's at least a friendly, recognisable face. He presents Christina with this letter containing Christian's offer, and she's promised financial guarantees for herself and her family too, and told she'll be allowed to resettle at Tavastehus Castle in Finland. So this is a very generous offer, to be fair.
1: And Christina mulls this decision over, probably looking at the map of Sweden on her desk, which essentially now is just all coloured in Danish red, and, well, she decides there's really no other way out. Food supplies, whilst initially good, are running down each day that passes, and so she surrenders. There we go, once again, just like when her namesake defended Stockholm 20 years earlier, the city has not been taken by force, but rather starved out and eventually agreed to be given up. And so on the 7th of September 1520, the gates of Stockholm are opened to King Christian and he marches in with a thousand soldiers on horseback and two thousand foot soldiers. Remember, we said the population of the city was only between five and seven thousand. So that goes to show the comparative size of the force Christina was holding out against, especially when all the inhabitants of the city were not soldiers, of course.
0: Yeah, so it's potentially up to half the size of the city that Christian brings in with him, which is both a guarantee of his safety, but also a massive show of his power and his determination to take the throne. And Christina, yeah, she really did try and hold out, but eventually, with no prospect of resupplies coming in, and with the Swedish side's continuous defeats over the rest of the country, the game really was up. She's actually been holding out for almost a year at this point. But perhaps as a sign of the resistance she put up, and her willingness to take command even when things were going against the Swedish side, Christina is remembered in Swedish history as a person who stood fast in the face of invasion. The current palace in Stockholm is not the same one as the castle she was in command of, but it does stand on the same spot. And just outside the palace gates, in the courtyard where the palace guards do their changing of the guard, there's a statue of her there looking very defiant and in control.
1: Yeah, it's a good facial expression she got on that statue. It really says, like... Come on, you go ahead, try to mess with me, I dare you. We'll put up some pictures of it on our Twitter and Facebook pages and on our website in time for the release of this episode. We should say, though, that the statue and her cool facial expression is entirely based on artistic imagination because there are no contemporary images of her from when she was alive.
0: Yeah, she could have looked like Hagrid.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I guess. Personally, I think that she likely looked a lot more worn out in real life than she does on that statue, because this siege and this whole war with Denmark has come at great personal cost to her. First of all, she's lost her husband, but remember we said she was pregnant when she took over command and the siege started. Well, at some point during the siege, between February and September 1520, she's given birth to a baby boy and likely lost it as well, or the baby dies just after the siege is over. We don't know, but she loses the baby at some point around this time.
0: Indeed, and that really hits you when you think about it. She's only 25, but she's already been married and had six children, commanded the defence of a city, lost her husband and one child, sent another one abroad to keep them safe, and seen the country fall at the end of all this. Essentially because she had to take the tough decision to surrender. I mean, it was over anyway, but she did have to put the final sort of check in the box. And that's a hell of a lot more than I'd done where before I was 25.
1: Yeah, I think that's a lot more than most people have done by the time they're 25 or done ever in their lives and it's not over for Christina. She'll come back in our story again but what is almost over is this episode. After he's celebrated his victory for a bit King Christian hands over the rule of Stockholm to three Danish commanders and one German because he needs to head back to Denmark for a bit but he's going to come back to finally have his glorious coronation as king of Sweden, celebrating the fact that he's managed to do what his father and grandfather failed to do, namely to crush the Swedish resistance to the joint rule of the Kalmar Union by one king, once and for all.
0: Yeah, that's when King Hans is sticking up his hand. He's like, but I was king of Sweden for a little bit. But yeah, he he was never really secure in that role, whereas King Christian seems set up for, for life now.
1: And he's also going to settle some scores in a big way. But more on that next time, don't worry. This has obviously been a big moment and we will focus a lot more on Christian and the magnitude of his success in the next episode. As we really wanted to look at this story from Christina's point of view, especially in this episode.
0: Yeah, so more on Christian, what he's doing, what he's thinking and what he's going to do in the next episode uh, because all that remains now is to say thank you for listening and uh, see you again in a couple of weeks.
1: In the meantime, if you would like to support the podcast in ways other than just listening, the best way is to tell a friend about us or follow us on social media. Just search for a flatpack history of Sweden on Facebook or Twitter, or you can send us an email at at gmail.com
0: or you can visit our website aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com and consider leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. But until next time, it's just uh, take care. Hey do Bye bye.